are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and betting when you cannot win. This is Season 5, Episode 5, Droid Rights. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. It's going to be difficult to not fall into accents when doing this episode, (laughs) I imagine. Maybe not for me, but definitely for you. Oh, yeah. We'll see how many come out. (laughs) We're talking about droid rights today in Star Trek and Star Wars and maybe a few other little little properties, and we'll see. Uh, It is a gorgeous day as we record this in early June. Should be coming out in late June. Uh, Just before we dive into our quotes, I just wanted to say that After this episode, we're going to have one more episode, and then we're going to take a little month-long break because of a bunch of stuff that Carrie and I have to do in July, and we'll do the second part of season five in August, sort of like the way they're doing Stranger Things right now. Um, Which I forgot about and then mm -hmm. was very frustrated with, so it's a good thing you're warning our our, uh, lone listener, Uh our faithful listener, so that they are prepared. What's our scripture quote today, Carrie? Our scripture quotation is from the wisdom of Solomon, but translated as our Episcopal enriching our worship has created it as Canticle A, a song of wisdom. Wisdom freed from a nation of oppressors, a holy people and a blameless race. She entered the soul of a servant of the Lord, withstood dread rulers with wonders and signs. To the saints, she gave the reward of their labors and led them by a marvelous way. She was their shelter by day and a blaze of stars by night. She brought them across the Red Sea. She led them through mighty waters, but their enemies she swallowed in the waves and spewed them out from the depths of the abyss. And then, Lord, the righteous sang hymns to your name and praised with one voice your protecting hand. Her wisdom opened the mouths of the mute and gave speech to the tongues of a newborn people. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from Captain Picard, Star Trek The Next Generation, Season 2, Episode 9, one of the top five episodes of The Next Generation, Measure of a Man, Picard says, Now, sooner or later, this man, speaking about Commander Bruce Maddox, or others like him, will succeed in replicating Commander Data, and the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. This concept of androids, robots, droids is not a new thing that Star Wars and Star Trek talks about. It's one of the oldest parts of science fiction, I would say, in the 20th century, going back to, I think, of the German movie Metropolis and then having, uh, you know, Terminator, The Matrix, all these questions around artificial intelligence, droids, androids. Mm -hmm. Blade Runner being a huge part of that. Blade Runner, thank you. Um, But basically we don't have artificial intelligence to the point where we have to worry about this question at the moment, as far as I'm aware, but as humanity has been able to imagine what it would be like to create 
um, artificial intelligence, self-aware machines, we've grappled with this question of what it means for them to have free will consciousness, to be sentient or sapient or whatever word we're using in this, and what that means, the fact that we created them. And so like so much good science fiction, this can be a lens through which we look at difficult moral dilemmas in our own lives around how we treat other sapiens, other human beings. Currently, that's the only race Mm -hmm. that we know of and becomes a good lens of which we can explore problems in our own world. Yeah, definitely. And we did some, a little research and by research, we watched YouTube. Um, the best kind of research. <laughs> the best kind of research. <laughs> and, and Carrie stumbled upon this great YouTuber, uh, pop culture detective, and he had a, a wonderful video on the tragedy of droids in Star Wars, which we highly recommend. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, uh, we'll reference that a couple of times as we talk, um, talk through this topic, but we, we, um, we'll put the link to that video in the show notes. Uh, so, when we go back, I didn't know that the word robot came from the, from the Czech word for slave or for forced labor. That was mm. a new concept for me. me. Me as well. And looking at what pop culture detective references is a, is a play from the 1920s from, from Czech, Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, about humans creating a race of artificial people that they use as slave labor who ultimately overthrow their enslavers. And that is one of the constant themes we're going to look at in our episode and that has been looked at throughout talking about AI, which is that humans who create this artificial intelligence then use it as forced labor and what we do when there's an uprising. And one of the things that the the reason that this concept of androids and robots is such an important well of content for science fiction is how it maps onto the way that humans have treated each other as you mentioned mm-hmm. before it's it's a very close analog for how white supremacy over the last 500 years or so created the oppressive systems that we are still grappling with today one of the reasons we wanted to talk specifically about the Star Trek episode Measure of a Man is that they reference slavery very prominently mm-hmm. within that episode. And what's interesting is I think in the in the modern day conversation around white supremacy and overcoming the cultural sins that are embedded into American culture from the beginning which is you know the use of people as property there's there can be a lot of fear and a, and a difficulty of seeing what true reconciliation looks like. What's interesting to me about these two properties, about looking at data in Star Trek and looking at what pop culture detective calls the tragedy of the droids in Star Wars, is that unlike something like The Matrix or Blade Runner or Battlestar Galactica, the robots aren't the enemies. There ends up being a partnership forged, a kind of not not quite equality yet, but you can imagine a future in which if Star Wars were to take the next step and as pop culture detective has a, a, as a theory at the, sorry, what pop culture detective says at the end of his video, which is what if the liberation of the droids was made a central part of the rebellion, how much more powerful that message would be that these two don't have an adversarial relationship, humanity and the droids. Instead, there's more, there's subservience definitely baked into the system. But you can imagine a world in which there isn't as much antagonism if humans would take the next step and allow for full personhood for these creatures. 
And the way that the droids are personified in Star Wars is interesting because some of them are humanoid looking and other ones look like machines or, you know, R2-D2 used to be described as kind of a trash <laughs> box can. Box on wheels. Box on wheels. Yeah, they mentioned the, the box on wheels <laughs> in the Star Trek episode. Yeah. They're talking about R2-D2, obviously. Uh, but it's it's interesting the way that the droids are personified in Star Wars. The main droids, uh, taking C-3PO aside for a second, with R2-D2 and BB-8 specifically, and if you look at the cartoons Chopper in Star Wars Rebels, they have incredible personality, even though they don't look human at all. But then they get turned into sort of pets. Yeah. You know, Poe kind of scratches BB-8 like he's his dog. Yep. Right? Uh, and then you have C-3PO, who acts as uh, something of the... We, you talk all the time about the audience's avatar. Mm -hmm. But in Star Wars, C-3PO, at least in the first movie, is the audience's avatar. You know, the, he's got the first line of dialogue in the in the movie, you know? Did you hear that? They shut down the main reactor. It'll be destroyed right. for sure. They're our introduction to the world. C-3PO understands his his role and yet isn't necessarily satisfied with it. Mm. But he also doesn't really know how he never tries really to break out of that either. He complains a lot. <laughs> you think? Yeah. The, the difficulty in Star Wars is that the, the plight of the androids is openly talked about. We don't serve their kind here. Mm -hmm. And yet there's, aside from L337, who we'll talk about in this episode specifically in from Han, so, wait, from Solo, Solo a Star yeah. Wars story, there's not much conversation about what it looks like that they are these thinking, feeling, growing, relational creatures. And we do see a spectrum in Star Wars. We've got creatures like C-3PO and R2 who have emotions, who form long lasting friendships. And then we've got the ones like the Roger Roger bots from the Clone Wars or the- The, the B-1 battle droids for those of you who um, you. like this stuff as much as I do. What's the one that helps Padme give birth that just goes, ooh, bah. Uh, it's the, the nurse droid. I, I don't, have the, nurse I don't droid. have the designation for that one. My apologies, <sighs> right. friends. Come on, Adam. Anyway, so clearly those are seen more as animated tools who are, frankly, like for the B1, C1, mm -hmm. battle B, droids. B1, there you B1. go. They're used specifically as cannon fodder, and it sidesteps the difficult moral conversation around your good guys destroying mm -hmm. legions of sentient creatures. So let's stick with the battle droids there for a second, because in The Phantom Menace, they are specifically being controlled by the command ship that Ooh, yeah, little okay. Anakin destroys. So in that particular movie, this is the, the this is the first time we see the battle droids. They don't have any kind of consciousness. They are literally being controlled by a ship in space that changes after that ship gets destroyed and the battle droids in the in the show the clone wars and in the in the movies attack of the clones and revenge of the sith they do have more autonomy hmm. now whether or not they have sentience or not they're completely played especially in the clone wars tv show for for humor yeah they're, you know the, with the roger roger and all that stuff you're right that this that, that cartoon was built for kids and so you have the good guys destroying creatures the whole time, but we don't have to really feel bad about it because they're just machines. Mm. That's what you're set up. That's the way they want you to feel because they don't want you to have those moral dilemmas. And then on the other side, we have the clones and the clones often think that the, the people who are sending them out into battle 
think of them as just another group of battle droids too, even though they are flesh and blood. And really, I think what's what one thing that I had never thought about in terms of Star Wars was this idea of the restraining bolts and who's controlling the droids. So in the case of the battle droids, is it that they're being controlled by a ship and they, if they were to be released from that, they would have the capacity for self-regulation, for thought, for self-reflection and growth, or is it that they were only, they were only created to have a certain limit? Because we definitely see droids later in, in the proper, in the various Star Wars properties, they can get set back by having their memories wiped or by being taken apart, but they have the capacity to grow. Right. And that's actually, speaking of specifically the main two droids throughout the, the, the series, C-3PO does have his memory wiped on multiple occasions, but R2-D2 specifically, and they do say this at some point, I can't remember exactly where, has never had his memory wiped. Mm. It's why he takes such initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, R2 is always ready to save the day because he has grown so much ever since we first see him in the Phantom Menace when he's just one of four droids that they send out to repair something on Queen Amidala's ship and the other three get blasted off very quickly <laughs> and he's he's there trying to fix the ship. From then on, R2 ha- grows through all of his experiences up until the point where he shuts himself off so he doesn't have to reveal where Luke Skywalker is mm. in the in the in the sequel trilogy. But he forgets that he can fly. Oh, you know, so I have a <laughs> this a whole other side. <laughs> there is a theory, there's a fan theory that says he his jet uh, pack legs got uh, got removed on the sand crawler by the Jawas. Oh, sure. That's not, I don't think that that is actually canon, but I'd have to go back and look, but, but it makes a lot of sense that, that the Jawas would take that part out of him because mm-hmm. he can still function completely. And those are probably worth something. Gosh, I love that random quip from me always <laughs> is able to bring forth such fringe <laughs> theories like that. I appreciate that. That's but the if, depth that you get in the podcast. If for you Nerdy do that Christians. with Harry Potter, I could do it with Star Wars. <laughs> There you go. We all have our, our hearts in the right places um, for ourselves. But R2-D2 is such an important character throughout the, the series. He mm-hmm. shows up in so many stories and he always does something. He always moves the story forward in some way. And in the couple of, there's a couple of places where he gets pretty injured. You know, especially at the, mm-hmm. specifically at the end of the original Star Wars movie, um, when he gets blasted by a, a turbo by a by a bolt from the Tie Fighter. Oh yeah, and they have to fix him, and then he's all shiny in the last scene, um, and then he gets blasted again in Return of the Jedi uh, when they're trying to open the bunker, and a few other times uh, as well. But I mean, I'm I'm a total stand for R2D2. I could keep talking about him. Um, no, he's the best. He, he, he's the best, and that's what what's interesting about this. Unlike this this gets discussed in the Star Trek episode we'll talk about. He's not shaped like a humanoid. He doesn't use words the way we understand them. People can understand his beeps and his boops, but he's not speaking any language that the viewers can understand. And yet he is one of the most relatable characters of the whole of the whole thing. You you talked earlier about the potential for Star Wars to explore the droid rights more and the way that droids relate to the other sentient creatures in the galaxy mm-hmm. the, it, uh, in the last Jedi episode eight, when Luke goes on the Falcon R2D2 wakes up and they have this moment together mm. and Luke says, old friend. Mm-hmm. And Luke has never really 
except for the, the very first couple of minutes that they know each other in, in the original Star Wars movie. From then on, R2 is always a companion to Luke, never really a, a servant. <laughs> You know, I mean, he he gets he gets kind of annoyed with him a little bit in Empire Strikes yeah. Back, but it's more of a friendly banter kind of situation rather than a master servant situation. And then we find out at the very end when Luke has exiled himself and didn't bring R2-D2 into mm-hmm. exile with him, which is a little strange because he has to take his X-Wing to Octo, which means he would have had to have a hyperdrive to get there, which means he would have had to have an astromech droid in his X-Wing in order to fly through hyperspace and he didn't bring R2. Hmm. So he wanted to exile himself from literally everything he had mm-hmm. and knew everybody, including R2D2, who was his best friend. Well, and maybe it, it is bringing, he would not want to bring another creature with him on that exile that he sees as a fully, as a full creature with their, with his own mind and destiny and thoughts and, so he must have brought some other droid that we don't know anything about. So that's yeah, and then, and then what happens to them? <laughs> Just hanging the out water? with like the penguin nuns. <laughs> that's penguin nuns. <laughs> Whatever they are. <laughs> In Solo, a Star Wars story, which I'm going to refer to by its full name the whole time because it's just too wonderful not to. We do have, they do touch on the idea of droid rights. They say, they talk about the liberation of the droids and yet, they shy away from going all the way with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. L3's L- character is very much a comedic character and they, they wave away her desire for droid, for droid rights. You know, she, 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 she busts restraining bolts off of the droids when they're at a place that has slavery, like mm-hmm. literal, like slavery of sentient creatures flesh and blood creatures not synthetic creatures uh and yet when she tries to liberate the droids it's all eye rolls and uh come on yeah i think i mean she's definitely one of the most captivating characters in star wars that i've ever seen she's one of my favorites i love phoebe waller bridge and in anything she does and i i think i had read somewhere that she didn't she was not a biggest, the biggest Star Wars fan. So when she was cast to be a droid, she didn't really know how to be droidy, which might explain some of L3's humanity and passion that you see more so than actors who are trying to be a, a synthetic life form. And I do think it's not a coincidence that she is the only coded female droid that we have as a main character because her constant pleas for equal rights for being treated like of a, a full creature are played off as a joke in a lot of ways. It could have been a really significant part of the rest of the Star Wars films. And yet she ends up, you know, with her brain detached and stuck into the Millennium Falcon, all just as a callback to that one line that C-3PO has about, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. Um, And the constant way they refer to the Falcon as a she all the time, more so than than any average ship. It just seems like a really tragic end for such a passionate character one who fights for droid rights and then is literally disassembled and like depersonified and stuck into a machine to be a tool yeah star wars from the very beginning has had a lot to say about standing up against fascism and how to protect a democratic society how to fight against tyranny but there's Mm -hmm. this blind spot when the droids are concerned where the droids are concerned uh, you just mentioned a second ago about L3 being put inside the Falcon as the Navicomputer. Uh, 
it made me think about in the episode Measure of a Man, the Star Trek episode, they talk about the Enterprise computer and how it differs from data. Mm -hmm. Uh, And would the Enterprise computer be allowed to refuse or refit? With the idea being, no, of course course not. not. It's property. It's property. It's definitely property. In a very late episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, the Enterprise computer basically becomes sentient and, and has a baby. What? I don't remember this at all. It's a weird episode on the holodeck and and anyway, but they actually do explore the idea of the Enterprise computer uh, maybe becoming a little bit more sentient or trying to become a life form late in the series. So that does happen. Hmm. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) again, Star Trek The Next Generation is not a subtle show. No, it very earnest. It's very earnest. It's very night, late eighties, early nineties. And they talk about property and they talk about slavery around the concept of the androids. Should we summarize this episode really quickly? In measure of a man, Lieutenant commander data, the operations officer of the enterprise comes face to face with an old nemesis of his commander, Bruce Maddox, who was the only dissenting voice when he uh, applied to go to Starfleet Academy. Maddox wants to do some ill-conceived experiments on Data, and Data does not think that he has the chops to do it, and so he's, he refuses. Uh, long story short, they have to con- they convene a hearing to decide whether or not Data is allowed to leave Starfleet or if he is the property of Starfleet, and that brings up all of the moral arguments around it, it, does data have consciousness and sentience and intelligence? Uh, and if so, does he then have the right to self-determination or as they say it, the right to choose? Oh, and I do want to just a quick, just a tiny caveat. We're specifically talking about the show Star Trek, the next generation right now. I'm not going to get into any of the stuff that happens in the show Picard because it would completely derail this conversation. And I'm not sure how well they thought through what they talk, how they, they did the androids on that show. So we're just going to stick with next gen. So, all right. Anyway, have at it. So there's a lot of conversation basically around consent and right to self-determination and autonomy. And early on in the episode, data makes the argument. If commander LaForge's eyes, his cybernetic eyes are so much better than human eyes. Why not just replace all human eyes with cybernetic eyes? The only reason that that question is not asked is because Unlike data, they are humans. Um, and when when Picard is talking, Picard treats data as though he is, because he truly believes he is a full person. He calls him he, calls data he, um, as a full member of his crew with the right to self-determination. And he will fight for data's right to determine, to consent or not consent to any procedure being done on him. The crux of the episode is a conversation between Guinan, who we talked about last time. Yay, Guinan, two episodes in a Fantasy row. Fantasy chaplain. Uh, an, a conversation that Guinan has with Picard in which uh, Guinan says, well, consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. They do the dirty work. They do the work that nobody else wants to do because it's too difficult or too hazardous. And an army of datas, all disposable. You don't think you don't have to think about their welfare. You don't have to think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people, and that brings up. And then Picard rec- realizes that she's talking about slavery and goes into mm. the quotation that we had at the beginning of the episode. And this comes from the mouth of Whoopi Goldberg, who had recently starred in The Color Purple. When Picard tweets to what she's talking about and says, "You're talking about slavery." Guinan says, oh, I think that's a little harsh. 
and and both Adam and I, we talk about this ahead of ahead of the episode. We both think that she's kind of provoking him into the reaction that he has, which is basically to get him to say, I don't think that's harsh. I think that's the truth. But that's a truth that we have obscured behind a comfortable, e- easy euphemism property. So she's able to encourage this response to strengthen as a good chaplain, you know, might do to challenge and strengthen what he's trying to say. And this will serve him very well in the next scene which is, you know, the part where Picard actually does defend the humanity of data. Yeah. And the using the word property is so important there because it does link it very, very strongly to American chattel slavery in the Dred Scott v. Sanford decision of the late 1850s. The Supreme Court said that enslaved people were property and were not Allow if they made it to a, a free state, that didn't mean they weren't still property. So, so the measure of a man hearing is, in a way, kind of a relitigating mm. of the Dred Scott decision of the 1850s. And again, because data is is he unique in this world? Are there other well, besides Lore? What... Besides Lore, at this point, Lore, okay. he's, he's the only yeah. So they want to do this experiment. Maddox wants to do this experiment in order to unlock the secrets of Dr. Sung and create more data. So right now, data himself is kind of a curiosity, is, is a unique, almost unique creature. But they want to be able to create more, which is what uh, Guinan says, an army of datas. And the way that one of him is treated is sets a precedent for how the rest of these potential creatures will be treated in the future. Are they going to be equal partners in with right to self-determination or are they going to be property treated as such? In, in the episode measure of a man, we see several moments where data's sentience or sapience gets downplayed. Uh, you talked already about, about not gendering him. Uh, hmm. Maddox calling him it the whole time until the very end of the episode when a little bit on the nose, he says that he, he's a he. Um, but he talks about a negligible risk to data, to data when data realizes this is not a negligible risk, but it's negligible because Maddox doesn't think he's sentient. And before Picard uh, gets on board with data's thoughts, he says, well, I have to consider Starfleet's interests. Right? Picard is is kind of balancing at the at that point until data pushes him with the thing about LaForge's eyes. And that's when Picard goes, wait a second, this is what we're actually talking about. Picard is able to notice that he is treating his crew members with two different measuring sticks. It's also interesting to me that the risk to data in this procedure is not that he will be destroyed in a physical sense. It's the actual events of his life will be preserved. What's at stake is what data calls the essence the the ineffable quality to memory, which he says, I do not believe could survive your procedure. And that is what what is important. That's what makes him who he is, not just a record of the events, but his experience of them. He says, when Dr. Soon created me, he added to the substance of the universe. If by your experiments, I am destroyed, something unique, something wonderful will be lost. And so not, not just experiences, but the quality of the memories and his particular interpretation of them is what makes him a person. And that links back to the droid wipe, the wiping of memories of droids in Star Wars, that where they, they perhaps lose that, um, that ineffable quality of memory. Um, and and I, that, that, that reminds me of something that Riker says. As, remember, Riker has to be the prosecuting attorney in the hearing, uh, which 
Riker does not want to do, but realizes it's his duty. And he says it's meaning data. Uh, its purpose is to serve human needs and interests. I went back and I looked at a couple other episodes of Next Gen, uh, the, the ones that actually have Dr. Soong in them. And we find an episode later on called Birthright uh, that Dr. Soong's purpose for data was not to serve humanity, but it was to create a synthetic being that could learn and grow and become more human. They always talk about in behind the scenes features, data being this Pinocchio archetype, you know, wanting to become human, become more. And data says in Birthright, the images I saw during the time I was shut down uh, were generated by a series of previously dormant circuits in my neural net. I believe Dr. Soon incorporated those circuits into my base programming, intending to activate them once I had reached a certain level of development. And those circuits are all about imagination and dreaming, which is so interesting. And that's also the episode where we meet, where Dr. Bashir from uh, Deep Space Nine is in it. And he calls data a synthetic life form. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time we hear that particular phrase. It, and he immediately, Bashir, sees data as a life form, you know, not just a machine. And then there's another episode called Inheritance where we meet somebody who, who says she's data's mother and she doesn't even know she's an android. And she ages and dies as a human. And then data discovers that she's an android. And it was because Dr. Soon, it's not a great episode, but it's because <laughs> Dr. Soon wanted to give another one of his androids the full experience of human life. And, and which meant death. And not real, not thinking that you're an android. And not, not even realizing that you were synthetic. We're running out of time for this, but so I'm just going to mention the exocomps. We're not going to talk about them, but there's a whole nother episode in a next gen with creatures that don't look human that mm. they have a similar discussion about their sentience. And the, and the whole point of the discussion is they don't look human and therefore we don't even treat them as things that might have been able to develop sentience. So I'm just going to put, a, you can go watch the Exocomp uh, episode if you want to have a little bit more on this. An episode called The Quality of Life, that's episode nine of season six. So when they're litigating Data's humanity, his personhood, they talk about his memories, the relationships he's formed in his life, his intelligence, his self-awareness. But what is really at stake is that what he calls the ineffable quality of his memories. That's what he's afraid he's going to lose by not being treated like a person. And you and I recently had a conversation, Adam, as I'm creating my new Dungeons and Dragons character as a warforged barbarian, who's going to be awesome, by the way. <laughs> and you told me a little bit about how this um, ancestry, how this race in your D&D world works. Can you say a little bit more about your robots? Yeah. So Warforged are basically fantasy androids. And in one of my campaigns, I have a player playing a Warforged and I wanted to create uh, a new set of Warforged that had, um, that had the ability to think for themselves and to take that uh, type of initiative that I'd mentioned with R2D2. And I had to, and, and I wanted to come up with a way that there was an evolution of the Warforged in the world where some of them were basically just automatons that had enough intelligence to do what you told them to do, but not really any more than saying, telling a dog to go fetch something. I know your dog doesn't do that, but. <laughs> No, he doesn't. But I, I know that some, I've heard rumors that some heard dogs are capable of following directions. Um, but I wanted to come up with a, a, a way within this kind of fantasy science 
world that that would work. And it ended up being this thing called, I called it memory cocktail, where they took the memories of soldiers and then they mixed it with this uh, magical stuff or element from the plane of dreaming uh, called Halonir, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and mixing the Halonir with the memory cocktail allowed for this um, this sentience uh, for the Warforged. And we played with that uh, throughout, th- we've been playing with that throughout the campaign mm. when the guy who plays him has met other Warforged within the world. Um, and it's And it's been really fascinating to watch that character grow uh, within his own ability to understand the world because the character is only um, two years old. And and I think the reason, I mean, so I'm fascinated by that as I try to frame my own Warforged character and how he gains sentience and gains sapience, I guess I've been using those interchangeably. And the reason this is important, the reason that we talk about this, the reason that science fiction has been fascinated about this is it it matters how we treat other people. We as Christians believe in respecting the full dignity of every human being, every living creature. And the full dignity means recognizing a sapient being's right to self-determination and how we treat them is important, not just for ourselves, but in recognizing the fullness of God in every creature. This time in our book club, we are reading the chapters Cricket and the Last War from The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. That's pages 191 to 232. Here's a quick recap. The crew land in a modder community called Cricket, where they are in the market for shields after the pirate attack. They meet up with Kizzy's old friends, the siblings Bear, Nib, and Ember. Bear and Nib both sport plenty of mods, including a cybernetic arm and an ocular implant. While checking out the merchandise, the mission is postponed on account of an infestation of huge insects. Everyone settles in for a nice dinner and and then watches the news. Turns out the head of a huge energy company on Mars has been found guilty of being an intergalactic arms dealer. And he's Rosemary's father. Rosemary comes clean to Jenks, who continues to welcome her as one of the Wayfarer's crew, despite her family associations. Back aboard ship. Dr. Chef tells Rosemary all about the war that destroyed his species. He was a doctor whose main job was euthanizing soldiers who had bullets burrowing through their bodies, seeking major organs. The weapon was the organ cutter, a biological weapon that targeted enemies with a certain genetic code, similar to the weapons Rosemary's dad sold. Dr. Chef tells Rosemary all about his time in the war, his grief over his deceased children, and the decision of the remaining Grum not to try to keep their species going after so much carnage. He also makes a point to say that humans and Grum are alike and that the only thing that saved the humans was that they destroyed their planet before they could destroy each other. I almost don't know what to say after. I mean, these these are some heavy chapters. Cricket, the beginning parts of Cricket have a nice light quality to that. I love the siblings, um, Ember, Nib, and Bear. I'm curious about their lives and the kind of hints that we get about them. And yet really the heart of that chapter ends up being this confession that Rosemary has about the question we've had about her since the beginning of the book. Why is she running? Why is she so scared? 
how did she end up on the Wayfarer far away from her home of Mars if she is such a sheltered creature like she is? And we find out that why she did not participate in the weapons dealing that her father did. She didn't even assist in any way. She didn't doctor forms or lie to the police. And yet she's so ashamed and traumatized by it. And Jenks, in the good way a friend can do, comforts her, says he doesn't understand, but he's there for her to cry on the shoulder if she needs it. And she really should have a conversation with Dr. Chef. It's interesting how this this whole two these two chapters are framed with weapons. The, the all the whole this whole section of the book is about weaponry. Ashby being this pacifist, we know this from his experience with Pay earlier in the book, is on cricket looking for shields, and he thinks about what the pirate attack would have felt like if he had had a gun. Uh, and he and it says um, he touched his jaw. The bruises from the Akarax rifle were still fading. He revisited those horrible moments in the cargo bay, remembered how it felt to have strangers rip their way into his home. He recreated the incident, imagining a gun in his hand. Would he have fired? He couldn't say. But imagining the addition of a weapon in that scenario made him feel safer. He no longer felt helplessness. He felt powerful. And that was what scared him. I'm not compromising my principles over this. That's that. And I think this feeling of power is a bit illusory because what is the power? Power is to take the life of another creature. Provided you're even able to in the moment, let alone have the technical skills to do it. Mm -hmm. And Ashby, his principles as a pacifist say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and it, it brings up this whole, like the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun argument that you hear and we're recording this we should say in the wake of literally dozens of mass shootings happening in the last couple of weeks the worst being the one in uvalde texas at the elementary school and so recognizing these chapters about weapons uh and the way that the author treats these discussions is really interesting um because it's not just a one-size-fits-all answer for these characters but in the end, what we're really treated with is Dr. Chef's cautionary tale about what happens when these weapons get so far beyond a scale of that we can imagine right now and what it would do to um, basically his, his society had a nuclear winter. And, and the siblings will bring up that it, it's, there's a big difference between what they do, which is having technically illegal weapons that they create as a hobby sold only to trusted friends and neighbors for their own self-defense in these fringe colonies in these different places versus what Dr. Chef experienced and what um, Rosemary's father developed or sold at least, which is specifically targeting the genetic code of others, other people in order to destroy them in a horrific manner. Yeah. And so what we see there, again, is one of the arguments that we get in the gun safety debate right now, which is, mm. yeah, you have a gun. Go hunting. Great. That's fine. But yeah. do you need an assault rifle to go hunting? Uh, and that's that that's that's where the conversation then kind of spirals from there. Uh, but that's kind of what you hear from from Nib and Bear. Is, yeah, yeah, we have these weapons. We go and we hunt these ketlings and we eat them. Right. And if self-defense for you means ends begins and ends at having a shield for your ship. Great. They can set you up and they'll take it very seriously. And yet, so then we have Dr. Chef, who was one of, one of the kindest, most gentlest characters in this entire 
series who we learn has such a bloody past that he has been running from kind of like Rosemary ever since he was able to get off of his own world. Yeah. He ran from it to Port Coriel where he became, you know, where he learned how to cook soup. And it's not until Ashby picks him up that he finds a new home. He stops running once he's on the Wayfair. So we learned that Dr. Schiff was, as you said, in the summary, basically euthanizing soldiers or at the very elite or Preferably, I think they would say, able to get them back on their feet in order for them to go out and keep fighting. He's very much curing people. What he learns in being on the Wayfair is how to truly heal people, how to nourish both their bodies and through his presence on the Wayfair in his garden in the stars, as he calls it, with his kitchen full of tasty things, how to be a presence of healing and not just of curing their physical ills. But that's something that he didn't have the chance to explore when he was serving as a doctor in the war. All he was meant to be doing was to be patching up these these daughters and putting them back out onto the battlefield. And then seeing them come back in a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. with a new injury or worse injury. And he does say that the the war progressed to the point where he, he really was no longer, once the organ cutters, these horrible weapons became common, he was no longer curing people. Right. He was basically, they were going to die and he was help. He was keeping them from having excruciating, excruciating pain in the half hour before it happened. And the breaking point being that he says is, is when he had to euthanize his last daughter, you know, the, the fifth of his children, who did not make it through the battles, who did not grow up as we learned the grum to mother children or to become male as they progress through the sexes as they grow up. Um, and he draws the the comparison with Rosemary, the thing between grum and humans, which is something I think that Ashby struggles with throughout the book when he thinks about his own pacifism is what Dr. Chef says, our capacity for cruelty. He goes on to say, which is not to say we are bad at the core. I think both of our species have good intentions, but when left to our passions, we have it within ourselves to do despicable things. And and one of those despicable things, Dr. Chef says, is um, getting comfortable with killing, becoming becoming comfortable to it, the desensitizing nature of killing. And we see that again in this, these whenever we have these mass shootings in the United States, there's a desensitization to it. So that in, unless there's one with the horror of the shooting in Uvalde, they barely ever break the headlines, which is why the school shootings or, or what I've been calling these massacres of children are the ones that end up grabbing the headlines unless the quote unquote body count, which is a, which is a, a desensitizing term to even call it that, unless that is so large that it makes headlines, you just never even hear about them, even though there's at least one a day statistically in, in the United States. When we are such a, we are such a weaponed country specifically, we have, so, we have so many weapons that can kill other people. You have the people in the Exodus fleet who knew when they were setting out from earth, that if they had weapons on board, they would destroy each other. They knew their own capacity for cruelty. And what Ashby earlier in the book says that we lack the maturity to engage in warfare, even if it's what he would say is justified, such as what pay is doing, um, you know, running along the Rosk border. We we don't have the maturity. We, we we kind of revel in that violence that's in our souls as human beings, that we can descend into this chaos, into this violence, into this power and lack of helplessness, you know, feelings of power over other people, fearing our own powerlessness. It's something that Ashby fears in himself. It's something that Dr. Chef sees at the, in the depths of his soul and 
the capacity in Rosemary. And what he says to Rosemary in the end is, you know, we're trying to be good. That's what we are trying to do. Yeah, you're 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 trying to be someone good, he says. All any of us can do is choose to be something good is the last line of these chapters. You are trying to do some, to be someone good, Dr. Chef says to Rosemary. And we'll see through her story in the book, she struggles with this idea that this is the man who raised her, who taught her how to see the world and the galaxy. And if he has this capacity for baseless cruelty just to get more money that they don't even need, what does it say about her? She has that same seed as we all do. And she will probably dedicate the rest of her life to being different from her father and to hopefully exploring the universe with eyes that are interested in learning and seeing and experiencing, not in destroying. And and she already has taken the first step into that by joining the crew of the Wayfarer and starting to learn more beyond the book learning that she had in college about other species. And uh, there's a couple of nice moments in the last word chapter where we see the differences between the humans and the other sapiens. Rosemary says how sorry she is about his experience in the war. And Dr. Chef says, it's such a quintessentially human thing to express sorrow through apology. Mm, mm-hmm. And we, we always hear that, oh, I'm so sorry for this or that. And uh, and then you'll hear somebody say, well, well, it's not, why are you saying sorry? It's not your fault. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sorrowful. Uh, I'm sorrowful. Yeah. I, I, I like that. The sorrow through apology. And then there, there was one other one uh, where, and I think this is such an important concept as we mature as people. Um, Dr. Chef talks about pain scale. If I've broken every bone in my body and you've only broken your ankle, it doesn't make your ankle breaking hurt any less right knowing that i've broken more bones than you in fact if it's the first time you've broken a bone it's the biggest pain you've experienced in your life and that's significant yeah and and to recognize that you the comparing of one to another is the is the source of a lot of problems and pain in the world well, as so as Dr. Chef says, feelings are relative at the root. They're all the same, even if they grow from different experiences and exist on different scales. He he uses his pain as a way to help Rosemary uncover her own pain. He locates his grief in this, you know, he's, he talks about his his pains and his emotions being kind of like in a prison that he keeps under lock and key in order to survive, to keep his mind stable. Um, But he purposely unlocks his grief in order to help Rosemary connect with her own grief. Mm, Yeah. And and he says that he's accepted his grief. It it was as much a part of him as any pleasant feeling, perhaps even more so that he knows that this grief is going to be with him for the rest of his life. And he's accepted that. Well, this is just a very silly thing. This being a very like loose moving third person narrative, limited third person perspective, where you have Ashby looking at the pixel plants in the homestead and being like, oh, they are homey and cute. My grandma had one. And Rosemary looking around her and saying the pixel plants smack of poor taste. <laughs> she just it just goes how privileged she is. Yeah. And on Mars where they could afford to bring in water. Right. That's something that we learned about this place has wells and otherwise they wouldn't be able to afford to live there. Um, And she also mentions at the end, like the one thing my family knows how to do is buy favors. And that's how she, she got out. So she, 
again, continues to show her privileged upbringing, but luckily keeps it to herself. And she is welcomed into the home of the modders. And Jenks looks at her patch and recognizes how good the job was done to, to, to change her identity. And that's because she had money to do it. Just a couple more little tiny things. Nib, the more erudite of the modder siblings on Cricket, uh, is a reference file archivist, a, a volunteer reference file archivist. And it just makes me think like this book was written in the really in the heyday of Wikipedia. And basically yeah. what Nib is, is a, is a Wikipedia editor. editor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he talks about bogus, bogus speciest, species, speciest. I'm not speciest. sure how to say that. Speciest, mm. bogus, bogus speciest submissions to the to the archives, uh, where they have to go in and disprove all of these horrible specious ideas that are being added to the the reference archives. And I love Rosemary's. Like I imagine them like you know, shining knights in a fantasy vid, you know, like <laughs> protecting truth at all costs. All right. We need some more nibs in the world. There you go. In crowdsourcing, actually, if you look at Wikipedia is the most uh, accurate encyclopedia that's ever existed mm. because of crowdsourcing. I mean, the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, back in the day had or world book, they had a couple of dozen editors and they would write articles from a particular point of view. Yeah. And now Wikipedia gets updated constantly. And yeah, sometimes things slip through, but they get caught pretty quickly. Why don't we end with this today, Carrie? Uh, Bear, one of the sibling on siblings on cricket, uh, makes a very apt observation. 90% of problems are caused by people being a-holes. The other 10%? Natural, natural disasters. disasters. Which currently... Are being caused in a lot of time, a lot of ways, I because people are being ailed collectively. All right, collectively. Uh, what are we? What are we reading next time? Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading the chapters Kedrium and Hatch, Feather, and House. That's pages two hundred and thirty-three to three hundred and two. Happy reading! Ooh, yay! We're we're gonna go to Sissixes. Yes. Ooh, that's hard to say Sussexes. with those. We're going, we're going, yeah, we're learning some riskitish. Risky, I can't do it. All right. Anyway, bring us home. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. So others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdy Christians and on Twitter at nerdy Christians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Planar Steel sequel to last year's Vampire Mist is now out. I have a physical copy on my shelf. You too can learn what happens when you mix a barrel of rum, some strawberries, and a Dragon King. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. God, you created all sapient life, and each of us adds substance to the universe. May your son, Jesus, show us the way to live a life free of restraining bolts. May your spirit help us to see when we have treated others like disposable people and give us the courage to repent. May your creativity and love enfold us as we boldly go into the world. Amen. Amen.